Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And for all my listeners out there who've been dedicated listening to these podcasts for over 10 years now, Adam, I've been doing these, um, we just want to thank all of you um, for your comments, uh, for listening, um, for listening to the words of wisdom from our authors. And today joining me from San Francisco is Adam Ghazali. Um, and Adam and a co-author, Larry Rosen, uh, have written a new book called The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. Good day to you, Adam. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Great, great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be on Inside Personal Growth and to talk with our listeners about um, how distracted our minds are. And I'm going to let them know a tad bit about you. Adam Ghazali is the professor in the Department of Neurology, Physiology, and Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, where he's also the founding director of the Neuroscience Imaging Center, uh, Neuroscience Lab, and the Ghazali Lab. He's the recipient of the 2015 Society of Neuroscience Educator Award. He wrote and hosted the nationally televised PBS special, the Distracted Mind with Dr. Adam Ghazali. My listeners, I think more than ever in today's world, are really, really interested in you know what's going on with the distracted mind. I mean, this has been talked about from people starting years ago at Microsoft and different tech companies. But you mentioned in the book that our brains are not meant for multitasking. What has the world of neuroscience found out in the last few years about our brains that our listeners really need to know because you've got a lab there and you're actually wiring people up and testing them. I've watched the videos. Um, what do they need to know? Well, you know, when you engage in a single task, you, you activate a network in your brain that allows you to pay attention and focus your limited resources on that goal. Um, and that network involves the prefrontal cortex, which is the most evolved part of our brains. And we see that everyone, you know, that does research on this topic uh, finds, you know, essentially the same network engaged when you're directing your attention. When you divide your attention, when another task comes along that also demands those resources, what we find is that you do not parallel process um, as people might expect, as you would you know, uh, assume is, is included in the concept of multitasking. Instead, what we're really doing, if you look at the brain, is switching networks to that that's required for the second task. And then when you move back, the networks switch back. So we see this uh, switching between networks occur um, whenever two attention-demanding tasks are being required at the same time. And with each switch between these networks, there's a little loss of that high fidelity, you know, that super high resolution information. And that leads to a decrement that's usually expressed in our studies as a, a drop in your performance. Maybe you're not as fast, not as accurate. And so you can extrapolate that out to the real world when you're engaging in something that is important to you, like writing a paper um, or driving or having a conversation with your loved one, um, and then something comes along and drives your attention elsewhere, maybe a text or going on social media while you're doing one of those things, um, and then you return again. And so what's happening in your brain is that you're really dividing and moving those networks and not 
you're not going to achieve the same high level you would if you just maintain sustained focus on that one goal. Hmm. Well, you, you refer to these in the books as uh, interference, uh, these distractions. And you mentioned that goal interference is either external or internal. Can you explain the differences in the uh, interference to the listeners between external and internal? Sure. So the examples that I just gave of looking at a text or going on social media um, is, you know, the classic examples of external interference. It's a stimulus that you attend to in the outside world that um, is competing with whatever you're doing. Um, the internal interference, which occurs all the time and is just as much a part of our lives as external, although it might not get as much um, notice, is when you pay attention to something internally. So, you know, you're having a conversation and at the same time you're reflecting back on an earlier conversation or thinking into the future of what you're going to have for dinner or what your next meeting is about. And those are, you know, that's a, an equally impactful source of interference on our performance. And we believe that technology, just like it has increased external interference by the amazing but yet challenging amount of accessibility of, of information has also increased internal interference in that now you might be more preoccupied with, um, you know, for example, social media or the news because it's just so accessible, driving anxiety uh, for people to seek out those sources. So even when you are engaged in one task, you have that internal conversation going on that's pulling you away from that deep sustained engagement that, you know, is required for high performance and high quality. So all of these electronic devices that we're wired to all the time are, are truly exacerbating the situation is, is what you're saying. In other words, both externally and internally. And so our brain inside is being distracted as much as it is being distracted by all of the various external things that we're being pulled away from as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I you know I I am always very careful here. You know I, I wouldn't say technology has created the interference. Um, we've always had these limitations in how we process information, um, not just multitasking abilities, but also our sustained attention is limited. Our working memory, which is holding information in mind for brief periods of time, that has very fundamental limitations. So these have always existed in the human brain, but technology because, as I mentioned, just the exposure that it has allowed for information and not just the exposure, the fact that our technology doesn't wait for you to seek it out. It can, you know, tap on you and ping you when it wants to let you know something that that has mm -hmm. definitely exacerbated the conflict. And I always say, I always describe it as the conflict between what we want to do, where our goals are, and what we actually are able to do, which is where our limitations in our attention and other aspects of cognitive control exist. Yeah, the delta between those two. Now, you use a term in the book called temporal discounting of rewards. And this means that we have fun as human beings kind of switching from task to task. Um, why is it, why is that so? And how are we hardwiring our brains by engaging in this temporal discounting of rewards activity? So, you know, we, we I, you know, as, as we describe in the book, we use some of the ancient 
and that's where the type, one of the aspects that, that we um, describe that contributes to why we call it ancient brains in a high-tech world, one ancient aspect of our brain um, is this drive, this you know ancient reward system that the modern human and other primates actually have hijacked for um, foraging in many ways, the way other animals forage for food, forage for information. Um, and so, you know, we're constantly setting our um, goals around this, you know, deep urge to have these information rewards. And so, you know, you have it with, uh, with you know, text, for example, is, is an example, or emails even people use very frequently, that the uncertainty and the novelty of the situation is um, is a strong driving force that might pull you off mm. of something else that's not, you know, re- creating more novel experiences. So if you're engaged, let's say, in writing an article, um, and you know, mo- minutes have passed, maybe 10, 15 minutes, the amount of reward that you're getting is diminishing uh, because the novelty load is less. And then here's this opportunity. For uh, for a blast of uh, of dopamine and reward, and so you constantly have these driving factors that pull you out of the immediate. And so these these reward systems are very powerful, and you know awareness of them is you know sort of how I describe is the first part to sort of taking control over them. So what do you think is happening to the critical thinking skills? I know that corporations today are continuing to drive. For greater levels of innovation, um, I know lots of people that work in high tech today. Um, they're trying to do all the things: uh, meditate in the office, give them naps, do all the kind of things that would stimulate um, that. What's happened to the critical thinking still skills of people as a result of these distracted minds, and and potentially, I'm going to say, just the exacerbation of having so much technology in front of us. So. You know the the cost of that is just. I just want to make sure I understood your question. So it's really about what's actually happening with our critical thinking skills as individuals as a saying. result of this, this multitude of uh, of um, technology. Yeah. So the high level thinking that we need to engage in as part of you know modern day society. Um, requires sustained, focused attention. Um, it, you know, mm-hmm. it always has, and it certainly, maybe now, needs it more than ever, as as the complexity of the situation that we engage in every day continues to advance. And if that attention is constantly fragmented um, by interference, that interference, as we talked about, being both external and internal, multitasking, and then also just what we refer to as distractions, just irrelevant information that is around you that you are not even trying to attend to as a secondary goal. You're not really multitasking. You're just trying to filter it out. Even that information causes interference. And so when we are engaged in things that are important to us, and you know, this covers the entire gamut of kids that are in class or studying at home, people in the workforce, uh, driving, you know, car on the road, safety, uh, trying to get a good night's sleep, so health, and then of course relationships, interacting with the people around us that are important. Because of all this interference across the board, the real world impact seems to be, an, you know, a decrease in the quality 
of all of those interactions. And, you know, that's a lot of what we document. And it's pretty much across every one of those domains, you can see the negative impact. Yeah, and I, I think it is eroding relationships and all kinds of things. And when Larry goes into this psychological part of it, we'll get there. But, Jenny, you spent lots of time in your lab uh, studying subjects as well as making the connection between the importance of the prefrontal cortex and goal setting. Um, yeah. what, what were you finding about the prefrontal cortex's role in goal setting? I mean, you even uh, discussed when people were doing frontal lobotomies in the book, which, um, which I thought was really quite interesting, is they were able to actually come back and kind of put it all together again. So mm -hmm. what are those findings about the prefrontal cortex and goal setting? So the prefrontal cortex uh, is the most evolved part of our brain, um, not just in terms of its size, but really its interconnectivity, uh, the network that it creates with the rest of our brain. And this is the center of our cognitive control abilities, our attention, our working memory, and our ability to task switch. Um, which we, you know, described as, as what occurs actually in your brain rather than true parallel processing when you attempt to multitask. Um, the prefrontal cortex is also the goal center, and goals are um, complex when it comes to uh, how we interweave uh, other goals and also across long distances in time. So what we describe in the book is that our goal setting is really I mean, in my view, it is the pinnacle of the human brain. It allows us to create these very, very time-delayed goals that we all have and um, intermix and weave between other people's goals and other goals at the same time. And I would say that it's this high-level goal-setting ability that in many ways creates the interference that we have. If, if we didn't have the uh, the drive to try to accomplish more than just uh, you know engaging in a conversation or or driving to work, but to accomplish multiple things at the same time. Although they're available, we wouldn't have the interference. And although other animals uh, have these limitations in cognitive control, you don't see them engage in the same type of behaviors in the wor real world that we do. So the prefrontal cortex being the seat of both what makes us human in, in the most amazing sense, which is our goal-setting abilities, also is the crux of the challenge in that that is where these limitations exist in our cognitive control abilities. Mm -hmm. So now, can you summarize for the listeners kind of your findings about these limitations on the cognitive control, control as it relates to uh, you have a little chart in the book, actually, our attention, working memory, and you call it goal management. Um, it, it, sure. was, uh, it was really quite telling. There was kind of a summary there at the end of the chapter that summed up in those three areas really what was going on with, with the limitations. Sure. So although we might not be aware of it in our daily lives, these core abilities that allow us to interact in this complicated world that we live in based on our goals, have these very fundamental limitations. Those areas are, as you just mentioned, uh, attention, working memory, 
and how we describe generally as goal management, which is really multitasking or task switching. So when it comes to our attention abilities, we're able to focus it somewhat, um, although you know we're still susceptible to distracting forces. But what we're not very good at is uh, distributing it very broadly. So I always describe it, how I describe it in the book is, you know, we can fire an arrow at our goals, but we can't really throw a net out, you know, into the into the ocean and just capture everything. Decisions have to be made. So that's like a very defined limitation in our attention. Another limitation in our attention is our ability to sustain it over time when we're not constantly receiving rewards, as, as we already discussed. So... This is something that, you know, you can experiment yourself. <laughs> if you try to really do one thing for a while, you will feel the mm-hmm. decay in that ability to hold your focus. Um, so those are two li- limitations in attention. Working memory is is something that we use all the time, an ability that we engage in without knowing, but it, it allows us to fill in all those gaps in our perceptual experience, to, to bridge them together. Um, so... It's not long-term memory. It's not the memory that will, you know, you'll go to when you're trying to think back on something that happened to you years ago. It's just the memory from moment to moment, and that also has defined limitations. It does not have the resolution and detail that your perceptual experience does. So there's decay immediately as you hold something in mind, as opposed to perceive it directly. And then there's a limitation in just the capacity of that information. So if it's low-level information like numbers, you know, you could hold, let's say, seven. Um, as the information increases in the complexity all the way up to, let's say, a human face, you can really only hold one at a time. So th- there's limitations. We just can't retain all that information as we move around. And so that's another very fundamental uh, hurdle that we face when we interact in the world, especially when we're engaging in multiple tasks. Um, and then the third is you know, we pretty much talked about that already, which is goal management, multitasking and task switching. With each switch of networks, as you move from one attention-demanding uh, goal to another, there is a decrement in the detail information that you're holding in mind. And what we see in the laboratory is that, you know, if, if you compare your performance when you engage in one thing versus two things, there's a you know a decrease in usually both accuracy and your your time of response and so these could be subtle but they're real and you know they um, depending on what you're doing uh, could negatively impact you in the real world so if it's something low level you know it might not be a big deal but if it's something that demands precision something that's very important um, and you know the ultimate example always given is driving a car where It could be fine uh, to do more than one thing, but then it's not. (laughs) And so when, you know, when the attention is needed, that's where you really see the the major impact. So that's sort of a a summary of those abilities and and the the limitations that we have in them. Now, you you actually have some charts and graphs in the books for my listeners, and you have this one about the perception action cycle. And you you make a comment that the perception action cycle has gone under major evolutionary modification. Can you explain to the listeners what a perception act, uh, perceptual action cycle is and what evolution has this actually taken? Yeah, so the perception action cycle is essentially the core of every brain. Um, if you go back all the way 
um, in our evolutionary past, even single cell animals that, you know, single cell organisms that don't really have brains, they still have this very rudimentary perception action cycle. And essentially what it is, is this loop between information coming into the organism, um, which at the high, higher level is perception, not just sensation, we, it's actually an interpretation, and then an action. So at its very uh, rudimentary level, it is what allowed us to seek out uh, food, to avoid predators, seek out mates. So you're driven by you know chemical stimuli that are perceived or sensed, and then they drive essentially a reflex loop that either makes you go towards it or away from it. And we still have a lot of these very primitive perception action cycles. So, you know, we call them reflexes. So you tap on your knee, the patella reflex um, is, is an example of this. It's what allows us to walk seamlessly without attention. Um, and we, you know, they're throughout our nervous system. They continue to play a big part in our, you know, interactions with the world. Where we have evolved is that the prefrontal cortex has allowed a delay in between a perception and an action. So this is what I, in the book I call the pause. This is where you do, we are no longer sort of slaves to our environment, to our perception. We're not, uh, we, we don't reflexively respond to everything that's presented to us. Rather, we can interpret and make decisions, and then set goals, and then act out those goals. And they may be counter to what would be the normal reflex, um, but that is what allows us to have control over how we interact in the world around us, as opposed to just being driven by those very ancient um, reflexes. So that's an example mm -hmm. of the modern brain, of where, you know, where we have evolved. Um, in, in terms of being able to set goals. The, the challenge is that we have limitations, as we just discussed, in how we actually enact them. So we might set those goals, we might resist the reflex of responding to a perceptual input, but when it comes to enacting them, we still have many of the same fundamental limitations that other animals have. Yeah, and I think many of those goals, a lot of them, you know, it, it will depend on, uh, you know, people talk about motivation, inspiration, and you're emotionally attached and your values are attached to them, which is why it drives you further to do more. And I know from a brain standpoint, I don't know exactly how that works. But, you know, you uh, promise to the listeners and the readers in your books that you're going to provide some practical advice about eliminating or reducing distractions or at least learning how to deal with them so that we can perform mm -hmm. better, have less stress in our lives. What are some of the things that you would um, inform our listeners about this practical advice to, you know, being able to better deal with all of these distractions in this ancient brain of ours? Yeah, you know, step one is what we just talked about. It's really awareness. Um, it's, it's critical in my mind that you have an appreciation of what your brain is good at and where, it, where it's challenged. Um, and, you know, you can see it. Once you start paying attention to these limitations in cognitive control and how technology has aggravated them, it becomes very apparent. And so that's the beginning. You know, it, it's not enough, right? We know that knowledge doesn't lead to behavioral change directly. We've seen that with cigarette smoking and sun exposure and other things that 
we have a you know a large amount of information that you know these could be dangerous, but yet you know behaviors persist. So I would say it's the first step, but not uh, the only step. You really need a plan, and that plan can take a while to implement, and you know maybe several tries. Um, and so the plan that I usually recommend, and the only reason I feel comfortable is because this is the plan that I enacted uh, myself, is um, is to really shape your environment based on this knowledge about where those limitations arise. So the first thing I usually say is is you know that I do is where my you know for example my workspace I'm at my desk right now, and I really work you know diligently uh, to keep it minimal to keep the distractions down so that when I want to focus, I have just the source of my attention in front of me. Other than that, it's really shutting down all those other sources that are always present. So when I want to focus on something that really demands high quality, especially if it's time sensitive, I quit my email program, I quit my browser if it doesn't require it, I shut my door, I mean, often I'll put my phone on airplane mode, not even getting texts. Most of my notifications are already shut off on, on my devices. And then I'll focus on that one thing um, and really allow you know, my sustained attention uh, to give me you know, the highest quality that I'm capable of. When you try to do that the first time, if you have not done that in a while, um, it's really challenging. Um, very quickly, two forces start competing uh, one is anxiety. Uh, some people call it FOMO, but it doesn't have to be just missing out on other things. It could be even anxiety about uh, performance that that you know you could be accomplishing more right now, or something else is is um, equally important to what you're working on. So maybe you should be doing them both at the same time. The other sensation that uh, starts accumulating very rapidly is boredom. Um, we've developed a very um, you know poor ability to just tolerate um, boredom of any kind. And so these forces, you know, with or without your um, awareness of them, will drive you to stop doing uh, what I just described, which is just focus on that one thing. And so the way around to deal with that is to set breaks. And those breaks might need to be every five minutes at the beginning, um, but mm-hmm. set the break and then not don't use that break to go on email or social media because that just creates this iterative cycle that pulls you farther and farther away from that goal. So the breaks that I like to do are some light exercise, even in my office, um, exposure to nature, either looking at it or you know if you could take a walk. Some people, and sometimes I will as well, do some breathing, some mindfulness exercise, meditation, and then you know a minute later, return to your goal. And over time, increase the period, uh, the intervals that you focus on one thing, and so decreasing uh, the amount of breaks that you take. And you will find that you can build up that ability to focus in a sustained way, and not just that you are able to, but it actually becomes more enjoyable with time. So uh, that's how I manage my distracted mind. I don't do it all day long. That would be impossible and really um, sort of counterproductive. I think it's more important to find those times and even schedule them on your you know your calendar when you're going to do that one thing but if you're doing a whole series of low level things then by all means you know multitask away um it's definitely could be more fun and sometimes it's the only way you could get through some of those things so that's a uh, that's right. my own uh, management plan 
Well, it's interesting when you're focusing on something like I just wrote my second book and finished it and it's just now getting ready for publication. You know, you wrote a book, you've written, I'm sure several, but the reality is, is that, you know, when you have to do that kind of activity, the advice that you just gave, whether it's working on a plan or it's working on your goals or it's working on something, you have to learn how to remove all those distractions from you or you'll never complete the goal. You'll never finish writing the chapter. You'll never get the plan designed. You'll never do whatever that is. You know, there is a question out there that's that's come in and and I, I hear this and I'm sure that you'll either you'll either agree with it or you'll set me straight. But you know, you see all these millennial guys out there in coffee shops with the headsets on in front of their computer and they're listening to music. Ninety percent of them are listening to music. And most people will tell you, well that you know makes me focus better. I've heard contrary. I've heard that having that music, that, that distraction, is is actually a distraction. What is the uh, what does the neuroscientist say about this? Well, you know, music is is actually sort of a, a complicated one, and I have read both. We haven't studied it in our lab, although it would be a, a good one because, as you said, it's 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 one that people have opinions on on both sides of the fence, and I would say in general. It's an interference, right? It's information that's irrelevant to your goal, and it creates interference. And I believe there are studies showing that non-human primates, when exposed to music, even while, while they're engaged in a test, you can see the negative impact of it. But the, the complexity is, although it, you know, in a very basic level, is a source of distraction, music also has the elements of uh, arousal, and also mood um, influences that could, you know, and this is my take on it, my interpretation of the literature, could counteract some of the interference effects. So if you're really just falling to sleep and completely bored with what you're doing, if you're listening to music that is arousing to you and maybe even puts you in a better mood, that will help you accomplish your goal. Um, studies that find, studies have found that the, the positive effects of music are really only there when you get to pick your own music. <laughs> so this is related I to see. that idea that, you know, there are these um, positive aspects of it that can be used as a tool, but if you're removed from the selection process and the music's annoying to you, then it's, you know, probably a greater source of interference than even, you know, just having white noise. Um, the other, you know, aspect of it is people will, and probably, you know, your listeners are familiar with this just from their own experience, is they'll pick the type of music depending on what they're doing. So, for example, when I'm, you know, doing things that are casual and, and don't demand a lot of attention, I can listen to anything. When I'm writing or reading something complex, I either have to stop the music because I feel the negative effects or put on something like with no lyrics, people will describe that they'll you know, modulate whether or not they have lyrics in their music, depending on what they're doing. So that's, uh, you know, my, my take on music. It's a, it's a little bit more complex than other uh, sources of interference because of those factors that can be used in a positive way. Yeah. And I, I'd say that uh, it's probably be an interesting one to study because I, I, I would agree when there's lyrics in it, it's much more difficult. I'm just speaking from me to my listeners uh, to concentrate uh, yeah. versus uh, just uh, music that's a relaxing type of music. Um, well, Adam, a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. 
sharing some of your insights about the distracted mind. For my listeners, the book is The Distracted Mind. We'll have a link to Amazon to that. Ancient Brains in the High-Tech World. We've been on with Adam Ghazali. Um, For my listeners as well, Adam, uh, if you want to learn more about Adam and the research that he's doing about the distracted mind, uh, watch some videos. Um, We'll put a link up, but it's neuroscape.u csf.edu. Um, there's also a video out on YouTube, um, and that is, we'll put a link to that one as well so that you can learn more about Adam, his book, and everything else that's going on. Any parting words for my listeners, Adam? Yeah, you know, I, I would say, as I, as I say to friends, you know, I, I really do think it's time to take control. Like, technology is amazing. I love it all. I am certainly not a Luddite. I am an early adopter of pretty much everything. But it's better for us to be in control and decide how and when we use it uh, than the other way around. So, you know, that that's my message. Uh, there's, a, there's a healthy way to use technology in a way that's destructive. And we just have to, you know, figure out how to manage that because it's only going to get more complicated. <laughs> that's that's for certain that's for certain well thanks you for being on inside personal growth and sharing some of those insights uh, i appreciate your time today my pleasure nice talking with you